Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Angry Environmentalist. I have a very special guest speaker on today, but before we get into that, I want to first talk about Lolita the whale, the killer whale, in Miami Sea Aquarium's care. I started a petition on change.org, and if you look up free Lolita or release Lolita on change.org, you'll find it. So the petition is to release the 56-year-old captive killer whale because she's in horrible condition there. She's in the world's smallest tank for a killer whale. And it's super, super upsetting and depressing to see her swimming in this tank. The tank measurements about are about 80 feet long, about 20 feet deep, and about 35 feet wide. And to put that into perspective for you, Lolita herself is about 20 feet long. And while killer whales can swim about 40 miles per day, some of them even seem to swim about 100. So Lolita gets none of these things in her very small tank that she's living in. I equate that to prison and solitary confinement. She has two other dolphins in there, I think. One of them she actually killed and, well, speculating that they, they think, people think that she killed the dolphin because of going insane, basically, from living in this solitary confinement. They're very social animals and she's living in solitary. So please go and sign this petition. There's a little bit more information on the petition. Again, that's change.org and look up Release Lolita. Please sign that. It would mean the world to not only me, but the hundreds and thousands of people who have been trying to get her free for the past 50 years that she's been in this tank. So please definitely go sign that. And without further ado, let's get into the guest speaker for this week. Welcome back to another episode of The Angry Environmentalist. Our guest speaker today is currently a senior scientist at the Center for Biological Diversity, where she works with the Urban Wildlands Program to protect biodiversity and environmental health at the interface between humans and the natural environment. And she also works as a wildlife corridor advocate. She received her bachelor's from UC Berkeley in biology and received her master's in environmental health science and a doctorate in environmental science and engineering from UCLA. The Center for Biological Diversity is an amazing organization that focuses on protecting our world's biodiversity with interdisciplinary approaches with the use of science, law, and creative media. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest speaker, Dr. Tiffany Yap, a senior scientist from the Center for Biological Diversity. Yeah, hi everyone, and thanks Taylor for having me here today. I'm happy to be with you to talk about fun things. Of course, yeah, I'm super happy to have you on and to be able to discuss this such an important topic. So let's get right into the questions. What are your main roles as a senior scientist foc focusing on wildlife connectivity? Yeah, uh, well, so um, working at the center, it's it's kind of fun and interesting because there's a lot of different things that come into play, but and and like the role that we take on kind of covers a lot of things, but in general, as a senior scientist and wildlife connectivity advocate, I try to raise awareness about the importance of wildlife connectivity to protect sensitive species and habitats. And so like one way I do this is by helping to identify areas that are important for connectivity um, and then work with lawmakers and state agencies on a way to protect those areas from further development, but then also try to restore areas where we need more connectivity because a lot of our human activities and our roads and our development have really done a good job of fragmenting those landscapes and thereby affecting a lot of the habitats and the species on there. So some of that can look like calling for more wildlife crossings on roads where there are a lot of animals being hit by cars, 
or making developments more life friendly by minimizing light impacts or noise impacts or like prohibiting the use of certain types of rat poisons that are, are known to be really deadly to certain species. And then I also work with media specialists to reach out to the public and to share the work that we're doing and um, the conservation goals we have and any milestones that we might might reach. Um, and so really with the ultimate goal of, of trying to protect um, as much of the species and habitats as we can. Wow, that's awesome. And yeah, I think it's super important, especially to get the media involved because people don't know about it and people aren't hearing about the science that you're doing, then you can't really do anything to help those animals and the wildlife and the environment. But it's also interesting, you brought up um, rat poison and everything like that. I'm actually, I just did a research paper on rodenticides and scars. So (laughs) I think that's super interesting that it plays a role in this. Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. I mean, I think one thing that, you know, I've kind of learned over time, like whether it was through school, but also in the work that I do, it's that there are so many different ways that we can affect our environment and vice versa, right? And so it's really just becoming aware of how we affect the environment and what, how our behaviors um, and things that we use and things that we do affect um, species and habitats can just, it can be really eye-opening, but then it can also provide like this deeper understanding of how we are really all interconnected. And so it's pretty, it's super interesting and um, it's, and complicated, <laughs> I guess. But, um, but that's great that you were doing, that you, that you know a lot about um, the rodenticide poisoning then and, yeah. and the impacts of those anticoagulant rodenticides on a lot of different species. So yeah, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. I want to do a whole episode on that so everyone can stay tuned for that. Okay, so let's get into the next question. Can you please explain to us what wildlife connectivity is and why it is so crucial in protecting biodiversity? Sure, yeah. So wildlife connectivity is defined as the unimpeded movement of species and the flow of natural processes that sustain life on Earth. Um, So basically, it allows for animals and plants to move among different areas of habitat um, to find the different resources they need. So things like food, shelter, um, water, mates, and like that's all really important for different populations and therefore ecosystems to remain healthy and be functional. Um, And so a lot of times, like when I talk about wildlife connectivity, Um, It's about the roads and development that slice up habitat and cut off that connectivity that's important from species that might be very small and very local, like, um, you know, frogs and salamanders or even small rodents, to animals that are really wide ranging, like mountain lions, coyotes, bobcats, to animals that are like move across continents, like monarch butterflies or like a lot of different migratory birds. And so connectivity among different habitats at those different scales are really important for all these different species so that they can move about and find the things that they need to survive and maintain healthy populations. Oh wow that's that's awesome. I didn't even think about monarch butterflies when I'm thinking of connectivity. I think of more of the any birds too. I think of more of animals on the ground but it's funny that and that's not funny but it's awesome that (laughs) also encompasses you know animals that don't use the ground because we are impacting everything, impacting the air. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and I, yeah, it is kind of an interesting thing because the more you like you think about it or dig about it, the more you learn. And that kind of also happened with 
as I continue working, right? Um, but it, you know, because there's all different kinds of connectivity, where whether it's like intact contiguous habitat that's just like really expansive and it's really permeable to all sorts of different animals moving, but there could also be like very linear connectivity where it's just like you know, maybe huge core areas of habitat are only connected by like this line of a ripe a stream or a riparian area. But then there's also, it's called stepping stone connectivity. So it's like little patches here and there that they might not be directly linked, but maybe they're close enough to each other that they still provide enough connectivity for species to get by. So things like, like backyards can be really great for native pollinators, right? So if you put a lot of native plants then um, insects, a lot of bees or butterflies can find, like, can fly around and find them, even though it's this patchy habitat. Um, and then same goes for migratory birds, but in a much bigger scale. Some of them fly thousands of miles in every season, and so you know they need places to rest, they need places to like refuel and find food, or they need their stopping point for where they want to like nest. And so it is an intricate balance of so many different things. And it can be pretty interesting and fun to learn about. Yeah, that's that's definitely awesome. It seems like it's really hard to research that as well. <laughs> but that's super cool that you're getting out there and doing that work, getting to see that. Okay, so our next question. During your time at the Center for Biological Diversity, which project has been your most favorite to work on? Yeah, it's always so hard to pick a favorite because there's pros and cons to every project and like there might be some things that I love of one thing and one project and then some things that I maybe not don't like as much. But I think, you know, when we were talking about wildlife connectivity, one of the one of my favorite projects that I've been working on is trying to get mountain lions in Southern California and along the Central Coast listed under the California Endangered Species Act um, as threatened. And so like I feel like that has just really it could really open a lot of doors for connectivity because mountain lions are so wide ranging. But it's also been really frightening to learn about and, and get a better understanding of how the mountain lions are doing and why they're, they're doing so poorly and why they're struggling. Um, so mountain lions in Southern California along the Central Coast, they've been genetically isolated into these subpopulations because of road roads and development. And that isolation is the barriers are just so big for them that they have really low genetic diversity. The levels of inbreeding are just going up and up and up. And so some of them are getting dangerously close to inbreeding depression if they're not already there, you know, and that can lead to reproductive issues that could lead to more susceptibility to disease. And so there's a lot of concern there. And that along with like the poor genetic health, along with all these other issues, all these other human caused mortalities, so vehicle strikes, rodenticide poisoning, poaching, wildfires where they're not able to escape because they don't have a pathway to escape through. Um, like all those things are, are driving this extinction vortex for some of the populations in the, in the area. And so it's become more and more apparent as time goes on and more literature comes out there's just so much information pointing to the fact that these animals, they need protection and we need to improve connectivity, connectivity for them in order for them to survive in the long term if we want them still around. And so really pushing for that has been um, really important and something that I'm really passionate about. And, you know, I think it's gaining momentum. There are a lot of people who um, have expressed how much they love mountain lions. They're this iconic species. 
it's like a pretty special thing to have a mountain lion, like a big cat, a wild big cat in city limits, like in one of the biggest cities in the US, in the city limits of Los Angeles, we have mountain lions. Like that's pretty amazing. And, um, but they're at great, great risk of becoming extinct. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of facets involved with the project, you know, public outreach, um, you know, talking to policymakers, trying to show how much these lines are struggling and that there are ways that we can still help them out. We can take action to make things better for them so that they have a better chance at surviving. And that I think is, is very hopeful. It provides like this hope because it's not over yet. It looks grim, but it's not over yet. And there are actually things that we can do to improve the situation for them so that we can keep them around. And so that's a project that I, I um, feel really strongly about and happy to be working on and hope to continue working on. So right now the mountain lions have candidacy status under the California Endangered Species Act. So that's temporary protections and we wanna make it so that they get full protections and so that we can then be even more proactive with more wildlife crossings and more green infrastructure that is more friendly to wildlife movement because that will help mountain lions, but it could also help a lot of other species in California and beyond. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's why I think what the work that you guys do at the Center for Biological Diversity is so important because you guys are so interdisciplinary. So you do a little bit of everything. You do the law side and the policy and you do the media and then you do the science. And I think that's super awesome. And I think it's rare to have an organization that does all of that in one. Yeah, you know, I feel pretty lucky to be working here. Like, I, I think it is a good mix of skills and expertise to have, like, team members that have experience. And like you said, in law, we have a lot of attorneys, we have a lot of media specialists, folks who know science communication and photojournal, or not photojournalism, but journalism. And social media is really important, too. Like, there's so many different ways, I think, to get people involved, because out there, there are so many different people who have different interests or find different, you know, um, ways of getting information. And so it, it is critical to be able to kind of put it all together so that a lot of different people have access to that information. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's so important because if you're only educating one group of people, then we're not really doing what <laughs> the world needs because everyone lives on this earth. Everyone needs and has the right to a clean environment with a clean environment, to be able to go out into the environment and hike and recreation, all those things, and get to see mountain lions for future generations as well. Yeah, for sure. So that's super important, and I'm glad we brought that up. So next question is, in addition to advocating for wildlife connectivity, what are some examples of other work that the center does, and how can listeners learn more about that? Yeah, so this is a great question, and it's kind of fun because there is quite a variety of stuff that the center works on. You know, so for in the Urban Wildlands Program, which is the program that I'm in, um, we do a lot of work regarding land use planning and land use policy. Oftentimes, that's looking at developments and seeing what their impacts are to endangered species, but also to for things like wildfire risk and wildfire issues, also water supply issues and also greenhouse gas emissions and climate change issues, right? So those are 
kind of some of the things that urban wildlands often looks at and works on. And then the other programs, we have a lot of different programs at the center and some of the work that they do, just to give you a few examples, one of the major campaigns at the center is the Keep It in the Ground campaign, where they are really advocating for no fossil fuel extraction and no oil drilling on public lands, near schools, or in low-income communities or communities of color, no offshore drilling, things like that, just really no more fossil fuel extraction. There's also work being done on wildlife trade and trying to really, you know, stop illegal wildlife trade and stop spread of disease in wildlife trade, because that is occurring as well. Other things include things like we have a whole oceans program. They work on no offshore drilling, but they also do other things like trying to protect whales from ship strikes or entanglement in fishing lines um, or crabbing lines. Um, and then, you know, there's also a lot of work that's being done to protect endangered species, whether it's through the, the Federal Endangered Species Act or other different laws or legislation or policy. Um, and so there is quite a, and that's not everything. <laughs> But it is quite a variety of, of different things for folks who are interested in looking into it more. You can check out the website. It's just biologicaldiversity.org. And then you can kind of see some of the different projects that folks are working on. Those are kind of like pretty general. Are the um, Like what I explained just now is pretty general, but you can go and look and see um, more specific projects on individual things there. So I definitely encourage you to check it out. Yeah, I'll definitely link the website in the description on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So for people who want to go, they can just easily click when you see the description because it's so important that you, you guys do so much, like I said before, and there's something for everybody. I feel like if someone's like, oh, I'm not really interested in endangered species, but I'm interested in the ocean. Well, they have a program for that. So <laughs> you guys have everything, which is awesome. Next question. For anyone listening who might be interested in having a similar role as you one day, what type of schooling or experiences do they need? Yeah, so I think, I mean, this is a tough one because I think it can really vary. You know, when I think about my experience, it was, and it is pretty meandering. Like I kind of had a few different routes. I took a few different routes before I landed where I did and found a good fit. You know, I think it, 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 it does depend a little bit on like what you're interested in and what you want to do. But what I find is often the case is sometimes folks might not even know what they want to do, or they might not even know what's like possible or what's out there. At least that was the situation for me. And so, you know, I, I did, I did go to a lot of school. Um, and so, you know, I think for me in the position that I'm working in now, I think the doctorate in environmental science and engineering helps me a lot because it, it is a very interdisciplinary program that I went through. And so like it was interdisciplinary, but then I was able to focus on what I was interested, in, which was more the environmental science than the engineering. Um, but to have the background in both was actually really eye-opening and I think useful for me once I started looking for work outside of academia. And, you know, I think if anything, one thing that is helpful, if you decide to go to school or not, like that's totally up to you. It could be helpful, but another, there are alternative paths. Like I think um, if you're open to trying or just seeing what's out there, engaging in things that you think are interesting could be beneficial experience. So whether that's, you know, engaging with other environmental campaigns or environmental movements that you might be interested in, whether that's like going to meetings or going to protests or like, 
signing on a comment letter and seeing what that looks like or looking into a development project that you think maybe it's in an area that you grew up in or a place that you like to go hike and just see what's going on there like what what are you know implications of something being developed there and you know i think just being open to experiences without necessarily having a specific goal can be can still you can still learn a lot from that and so i i'm not sure that this is like the answer you were looking for <laughs> but you know i think i think there are lots of different ways to engage and see if it's something you're interested in getting involved with i think you know keeping an eye out for other environmental organizations whether they're big like the center for biological diversity is a pretty big organization it's a national organization but there are also local organizations or there are big organizations that have local chapters that you could get involved with and see what they're doing you know and i think you you could meet other people that are really enthusiastic about the outdoors and uh, might be really also knowledgeable about things that are going on in the area if you're interested and so I don't know. There's also lots of webinars these days <laughs> that, you know, if you see something that you is a topic that might look interesting to you, maybe like, you know, the local state park or maybe schools or museums have talks that sound interesting to you, then it might be worthwhile checking them out. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that answers your question or if you want to ask another question to follow that up, maybe to focus it a little, because I know I, even in my answer, I meandered a little bit. <laughs> no, I think that's perfect. I honestly think that it's good to hear that everyone's path is different. And that's kind of what I want from that answer when I ask everyone and ask guest speakers is everyone's path looks different. And you can get to, we can all get to one place, but have completely different paths to get there. Whether that's through a bunch of internships, whether that's going to webinars and learning and reading books and then trying to get a formal education, just all these different things that people can get to one spot. Yeah, I think you summed that up really nicely. Well, that's all the questions I have. Is there anything else you want to add for people to hear or know? I really appreciate you having me on your podcast. It's been really nice chatting with you. And if, I guess, if anything comes up or if, if folks want to reach out, please feel free. I mean, you know, you found me on the center website and you just emailed me. And I mean, that's great. I love, I love it when, you know, folks just cold call. Um, I think sometimes there might be hesitation of that, but I think it, it never really hurts to reach out. And so if folks want to reach out, feel free, happy to answer any other questions. Thank you so much again for coming on. We appreciate it. That wraps up this episode of The Angry Environmentalist. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, stay angry and create positive change.